welcome again. This is another episode of the Ready for Thirty podcast live uh, here at, at, at PNT Knitwear in the Lower East Side. You know, for anyone who's listening, uh, anyone who knows me, uh, definitely check out PNT if you're ever on the Lower East Side. It really champions New York City-based authors. Uh, so, and it has a, a, this, a tremendous and intuitive uh, podcast studio for any of those uh, podcast uh, hosts and, and the ones who aspire to be a podcast host. You know, definitely check out PNT Knitwear. Uh, without further ado, uh, I have a friend, a, a colleague, uh, Jonah Goodhart, uh, uh, on the podcast. And and before I introduce Jonah, just to reiterate and reaffirm, you know, why I created this podcast and this platform, and this is something that we were talking about before. Over my career, throughout life, you know, I've I've had these experiences and these interactions with tremendous and remarkable people, and I don't say this lightly. Tremendous and remarkable people, not because of you know their their professional accomplishments and ambitions, but who they are as a person. You know, how are they vows this concept of doing good while doing well? How are these these leaders, industry leaders, again thinking industry agnostic? Uh, leaders who are able to unlock deeper meaning in what they do on a day to day basis because they're so they're so able to articulate their core fundamental values and these core fundamental values pervade anything that they do and it's consistent like you know if you point at a person you, you can more more i can more or less determine okay what, these are their their attributes or their values what they cherish what they hold dear to them so as I mentioned, Jonah Goodhart, friend, colleague, Jonah was the uh, the founder of Moat, uh, which is a viewability uh, and and ad analytics platform that was bought by Oracle. Uh, was it six years ago? In 2017, yeah. 2017. Wow, about six years ago. So about six years ago. And at the time uh, where Jonah and I met, uh, I was at Prestige Brands. Uh, working with my my boss and still a good friend and mentor, Mark Carlin. And we ran the in-house digital team at Prestige Brands. And Prestige Brands, not to bore you with detail, is an over-the-counter products company that that markets and manufactures products such as Luden Throw Drops, Clear Eyes, Monosat, Summer's Eve. And at the time, Mark is Mark is is championing this whole concept of we need to know where our ads are showing in the uh, across the the digital ether if you will the the internet uh it's this nebulous concept of i know we're we're spending money and we're getting our our brand communication out there but do we really know that it's being seen it's being viewed you know viewability uh, what are our consumers doing and mark said hey we need to bring in this technology called moat i uh through a friend of mine mark's also a cordell grad uh as jonah uh, I know this guy, Jordan, I'm going to talk to him. We're going to talk to him. We're going to go to New York City. And we made the, the pitch. And our boss, uh, Albert, was talking about a, a guy who, who's very number focused. He's like, you're telling me that we could hold our, our advertising partners and agencies feet to the fire based on the data that Moat's providing us. And we could, you know, really dictate the terms of these agreements and really say, okay, if our ads are viewed, you know, meaning above the fold on a page, we can ask for for uh, rebates and, and other incentives to keep us advertising because again, the data that Mo is showing is objective. Uh, he was all on board. So through that, you know, through this preamble, I met Jonah out in Montauk at one of uh, Moat's. What do we say? Like a like a consortium, a, a conference. Uh, where you got not just you know me from prestige brands, but all these different advertisers, all these different agency heads. I imagine some some members of the venture community came out, the media uh, to really and again coalesce around this concept of ad analytics and and viewability. And 
I, I'm, not, I'm not doing a great job of really articulating uh, moat. So that's why I'm going to turn the mic over to, to Jonah to introduce himself and to, yeah, to really talk about not just moat, but then moat wasn't your first entrepreneurial endeavor, right? It was not. No. First of all, Eric, thank you for having me uh, on the program. I'm excited to to be here filming with you in, in New York City. I co-founded Moat with my brother, but my story of of sort of building businesses goes back uh, a number of years before that. So I actually got started in digital in 1998 when I was a junior in college at Cornell University, wow. um, where my brother my brother's two years older than me um, was also at Cornell, and you know we had sort of grown up around digital and grown up around the internet. Our father was a professor, still is a professor, and uh, as a result, we had early uh, sort of uh, exposure to the world of the internet back in the 90s, which was email and the first set of browsers, things like Gopher and things that no one probably, uh, you know, less than 40 years old will, <laughs> will remember. But right. there was a sort of evolution for the internet. And I think as my brother and I were in college at the time, we were very close to what was happening. We were watching it with excitement. We had sort of looked at what entrepreneurs were, were were doing. And we sort of said, this is a world that we want to be involved in, but we didn't know what to do and, and we didn't know how to do it. So um, we sort of haphazardly in 98 noticed that uh, there were e-commerce companies who were just getting online. So this is, you know, think back to pets.com and uh, planet rx and drugstore.com and that sort of thing and they were saying hey we're going to build the internet's first you know fill in the blank first drugstore first pet store in order to get customers we're going to give away some of our products as an enticement to those first customers to get them in the door and so as a kid who was at cornell working actually a lot i worked at the computer center for five dollars an hour i was on full financial aid, as was my brother, we saw this sort of new, exciting internet thing as incredible. And when companies started showing up, giving away their products to get new customers, we said, oh, this is, we can we can get down with that. We like this idea of free stuff. And we just thought it was, it was cool, but it wasn't a business. And so sort of around the same time, we started noticing there were actually companies that were building uh, email lists, content lists, and they were getting valued based on how many email addresses they had in their in their newsletters, as an example. And so there's companies like Free Shop and Net Creations were public companies, billion dollar plus public companies. And we looked at that and we were like, wow, this is the future. So, you know, digital assets, these these folks are being valued based on these digital assets. There's something really cool and, and special about that. And so we started building uh, email lists, literally started writing content. Uh, coming up with lists of the best deals and offers and asking our friends to subscribe to them for free and mm -hmm. sending out the emails. And it was really only sort of randomly that that became a business, that one of the companies uh, that we promoted in one of our emails called us and said, hey, uh, we noticed you've been sending our emails. We'll pay you for every customer you refer to us. And uh, you just have to add this code at the end of your link. And all of a sudden, it went from this really fun, cool thing that we were sort of in awe of to, hold on a second, this is actually a business. Somebody's making money off of this, mm -hmm. and there might be a way that we can that we can build something here. And that was really the beginning of our first business, which was getting paid by brands to send them customers. And so that eventually evolved. And the thing about the internet that I think everyone 
knows, but we don't always pause to think about, which is that it's an evolution. It wasn't designed. It wasn't like somebody sat out, you know, the New York City streets were were somewhat uh, pretty clearly designed. They said it's going to be a grid. It's going to work in this way. Right. The Internet's not really like that. It evolved. It changed over time. And every every time something new happens, we have to react to that and figure out, all right, how is this going to going to change the concept of what we think of as as the Internet? And so uh, as a, a young 21 year old kid, 20 year old kid, uh, I saw this and thought, wow, this is a super interesting, fun area. And now we were making some money because these companies were paying us to to promote them. It One thing led to another. We met a salesperson at DoubleClick who uh, ended up being the top salesperson at DoubleClick. He ended up uh, leaving DoubleClick in 2000, 2001 when Bubble had burst and all of a sudden it wasn't cool to be in a big internet company anymore. And he said, you know, there is something of real value though in this internet world and there's an opportunity. And this uh, person's name was Mike Walrath. And he called me and said, hey, you and I have been having a conversation about sort of the evolution of the internet, what works, what doesn't, how people are uh, getting customers, how they're doing media buying, how the the world of magazines and so-called traditional media is being translated into digital. And he said, I think there's a business here. I think there's a way to more efficiently and effectively facilitate digital advertising. And what he ultimately uh, created, which I was thrilled to become the first investor in, and my brother and I served on the board of, was the first scaled ad exchange called Right Media. So this was, Mike launched this in 2002. Uh, he would go on to sell the company in 2007. So at this point, you know, my brother and I have our business that we had created uh, promoting brands. We now got into doing our own media buying. We now partnered with Mike and we were sort of getting getting going. And it was at that point, right around when he sold the company in 2007, that we said, we sort of paused. And my brother and I have tried to do this throughout our, I guess, almost 25-year career at this point, is we've tried to pause and say, you know, what are we, what's happening? What do we understand? What do we not understand? What are the trends that we're seeing? And we paused and we said, you know, there's going to be a lot more innovation, a lot of companies that uh, we can potentially be involved in that we can support. We started doing angel investing at the time. And we also made a decision. And the decision we made was that we wanted to build uh, more companies in, in this space. And so a couple of years later, we would go on to launch Moat, which, as you uh, pointed out, was a measurement company, although it didn't, I don't know if you know the, the original story of Moat, it didn't actually start out that way. It was more like trying to tell brands how to create ads and, and to storytell, right? It was a, it was a creative marketplace. Right. It was It was conceptually this idea that the internet, going back to what is the internet about, the internet means that we can be anywhere. We innovation can be anywhere because people can be anywhere and you're connected through this network of computers, which is the Internet. And so we said, why do we need to be, you know, on Madison Avenue creating ads? Why can't we be anywhere? And the people that are creating the ads can be anywhere. And so we had this sort of vision of creating uh, innovation that could happen anywhere at any time, frankly, across borders, not not just in the in the U.S. And. That was our idea. We turned out to be either wrong on timing or wrong on execution. But along the way, uh, we got feedback that, hey, the creative concept might be interesting, but what we really like are the analytics and the data that you're giving us about how these ads work and how people pay attention. And that really became, attention really became the thing. I mean, that was what we focused Moat on was trying to understand how people pay attention. And I think it's something that 
if you think about digital, it is not a medium that's comparable to other mediums in the way that, you know, TV versus radio versus uh, et cetera, because, and this is really critical, we do everything in digital. In other words, it's not our, an entertainment medium or a work medium or a communications medium or a financial medium. It's all of those things, right? And so we live our lives in a digital way. And as a result, it really is just a representation of us. And so one of the things that makes advertising challenging uh, and marketing challenging is that your mindset is not consistent with just the medium that you're in. So if I'm at the movies and I'm watching a, a trailer, I'm watching a commercial, you have some sense of what mindset maybe I'm in. I'm at a movie. So I'm kind of leisurely hanging out. I'm looking to be entertained. You get a vibe maybe for what the audience is thinking. Online, I might be looking at medical research at three o'clock in the morning. That's a very different mindset than if I'm watching a funny video at three o'clock in the afternoon. And so mindset is something that's really hard to make sense of in the world of digital. And so trying to understand things like mindset and context and attention are all parts of a very complicated but critical world, right? Why is it critical? Because most of us spend a lot of time on our devices. We're all guilty, right? And it, and it's hard not to be, frankly, at this point. I mean, the the most of of transactions, the way that we pay bills, the way that we get on an airplane, the way the way that we do most things are is becoming digitally powered. And so we live in that world. And so thinking about all right, how do you storytell if you're a marketer in that world? How do you measure that? Uh, became really critical issues that that we really focused on at Moat. And I think that you know the evolution from there for us was we sold the company to Oracle in in 2017. Uh, I ended up working at Oracle for almost three years. After that, I told my wife in the end of 2019, I said, after I leave Oracle, we are going to travel the world and 2020 is our year. That's going to be, you know, I promise you, like this is, I've been saying for years, we're going to do it. And yet again, uh, there was a, 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 a pretty big curveball thrown and that did not become the year that we could travel the world, but you know, you adapt. And one of the things that, that, happened as a result of the pandemic is that my brother and I had another one of these pauses where we sort of said, all right, what's happening on, you know, at a, at a higher level here? How are things changing? Where should we be focused? What do we want to be doing? And one of the conclusions that we came up with was that we enjoy building. We enjoy the process of iterating and creating and recognizing in any, you know, anyone who's built a company or really done anything of of that nature knows that it is not a straight line. You know, it is it is a very messy path. A, a friend of mine, Scott Belsky, wrote a book called The Messy Middle about sort of the the graph, which is all over the place because that's sort of what it's like. And we said, you know, but yet the satisfaction and fulfillment we get from being a part of a company, which you know for us is about the people that we get to work with, and is about waking up and having that feeling of, yes, I want to go do something that inspires me and that feels good. And that feels like I'm making a positive difference in, in other people's lives. And so what it led to for us was creating a venture studio, which is what we're doing now. And that concept was, all right, how do we take technology, which is, you know, there can be technology for good and there's technology for not so good. And we've seen lots of examples of, of both. How can we take, take technology for good and use it to make a positive impact on the world in some way. You know, in my mind, it's about building sustainable 
businesses. So the model has to support itself. It has to generate revenue and ultimately be able to, to hire great people and, and have those people get supported and, and be able to hire others and, and sort of build an ecosystem. And so you have to have a business model, I think is critical, but the question then becomes, what is your mission? What are you trying to do? And so, you know, one of the the areas we spent a bunch of time in is, is healthcare. And we sort of said, you know, look, healthcare is a gigantic space as a country, you know, you, you probably know the numbers. We spend four-ish trillion dollars a year on healthcare, almost, you know, a fifth of our whole of our whole GDP is is on healthcare. And there's a lot of challenges with it. I mean, I think I think as as a, an American uh US citizen, you know, probably we wouldn't be the first to raise our hand to say like we nailed it, we figured it out and it's perfect. Um and you should you should look at our model, right? We're in fact looking at it going, all right, there's all these issues with it. There's a lot of challenges. But yet at the same time, it is a tremendous amount, not only opportunity, but it is something that if God forbid something happens to you or a loved one, at least for me, I'm thankful that we have some of the smartest doctors in the world in our country and some of the most forward thinking researchers. Mm -hmm. And so we started thinking about, all right, the U.S. has a lot of things in the healthcare space that are great. It has some other things, perhaps some of the incentives that are not so great. How do we sort of think about building a business in this in this world with a clear vision? And our vision was, how do we use our background, data and analytics, mm -hmm. to improve health outcomes? So how do we use something that we you know maybe know something about for a good a good mission that actually is measurable and and that we can do good work on and so you know it's a it's a process it's early innings but it's been really fun to build an example company or product where it feels like we're doing something where you you can sort of see the results and you can see that you're making uh, a positive difference. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons we started the venture studio, but we're also building other uh, products, other companies, you know, that are maybe are tangential to healthcare and nutrition. And even in uh, most recently, we've been spending time in, in measurement again, um, because I actually think measurement sort of cuts through everything. How, what are the metrics that we use to judge success whether it's in healthcare or any other industry, I happen to have an ad background, uh, as it turned out. But uh, I think measurement is is a really critical area, and so we've been working on how can the world of predictive analytics and machine learning and artificial intelligence, how can those things be used for good, for measurement, for advertising, uh, as well as for for other areas. So. We'll see. We're having a lot of fun with it so far. Excellent. So with healthcare, like, can, can you specify like one use case of what you're trying to solve? Yeah. We'll, we'll love to hear that. Absolutely. I'll give you an exact use case, which is we're working with a company who their job is to help patients who are on Medicaid uh, get better coverage than what Medicaid uh, offers. So uh, you may not know this. There's 80 million plus uh, people in the U.S. on Medicaid, but there's also a very set clear set of standards of what will get paid by Medicaid and what won't get paid by Medicaid. And there's also a very clear set of standards around who qualifies for Medicaid. And the numbers, I think that the most recent number, it, it varies because it's a federal slash state program, which gets very complicated, like everything in health player. But for a family of four kids, I think it's $39,000 you have to make less than $39,000, which is not a ton. So you might make $40,000. You don't qualify for Medicaid as an example. Um, but what this company does is they go in to hospitals and they help hospitals get patients onto coverage that is funded by uh, a state program. 
So the patient, there's no additional cost to the patient, but the patient gets better coverage than what they had walking in. And so if someone comes into the hospital, maybe they're on Medicaid currently, and they have children, they might qualify for uh, something called CHIP, C-H-I-P, uh, which was a Obama era bill, which allows children to get certain types of health coverage when they don't have it. And so we met this company at a, at a healthcare conference and they said, you know, what, what our job is, is to help get uh, no cost to the patient coverage when they don't have it at the time when they need it the most. And we said, that's pretty cool. That's pretty powerful. Uh, how can we help? And they said, well, we have data, but it's not super optimized. We have, you know, tons of different hospitals that we're working with and we're trying to figure out how do we help them make smarter decisions about which patients qualify for which programs, but we don't know exactly where to start. And, and the way we're doing it, we know is okay, but maybe suboptimal. And so we said, well, can we, uh, this was the idea, can we, without taking private health information, because we didn't want to get PHI because it takes you down a whole different, a whole different sort of regulatory path sure. without getting PHI, how can we build a predictive analytics model that propensity scores their data that they get, maybe augmented with some additional data sets, so that they can literally make better decisions about coverage. So in the end of the day, that we can look at the set of patients in a hospital mm -hmm. and help get more of those patients covered, bottom line. And so far, it's early in our work with them, but I was just looking at some data today. It's It's been working. We're, we're actually seeing that we're able to uh, help them get more people to have health insurance with no additional cost to the patient. And so I look at that and I go, that's pretty cool. That's a good use of technology. It's a good use of data. It's, you know, for some of the people that end up getting health insurance coverage that they're able to then get a surgery that they wouldn't have been able to get, or they're able to get it faster than they would have been able to get. That's pretty powerful stuff. And so I think there are these examples where you go, all right, those are good uses of, of technology. How can we do more of that? How can we lean into that? What are other examples that, that we can provide for? And in that case, you know, we're taking a background in, in sort of big data and analytics mm -hmm. and not applying it to you know what I think some of the typical applications might be, but are saying, how can we use it just to help people who are already qualified that may not know it, get coverage that they may not know about in a more efficient way than they may have otherwise done and can get to hopefully a better health outcome. That's uh, that's 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 amazing, and I think you've you've done a, you've done a great job of not not just articulating what what you're you're doing, uh, the better suit is doing in 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 conjunction with the the startup again again providing a better health coverage at, at no cost to the patient, but what you're also articulating, Jonah, is this this whole concept of doing good while doing well, right? So did was that was that the intention when you were talking to Noah, your brother? Uh, about okay, we're taking a pause, and then when we're, we're done with this pause, we're going to start this uh, this venture studio. Was that the I don't want to say the thesis, but the north star of like how can we use technology for good? Yeah, it was literally the north star. We put up a uh, you know our venture studio is called Montauk uh, Labs, uh, mtklabs.com, and we put up a really basic site, but basically it says we want to use technology for good, um, and we want to we want to impact the world in a positive way. And you know we found that in our career. You know, there are businesses that you look at where you go, wow, that's really amazing. They're doing really good for people. And there's other businesses that you look at and you go, all right, it's, you know, I don't know if it's great for people, but, you know, it's it's a business and maybe the person will make money and they'll, and they'll give it away. And so maybe there's a net good story at the end of it. We said, let's build some businesses. The business itself is mission driven. The business itself is something that we can point at and say, look, this is what 
we did. How cool is that, that we're able to help people? And I think the key for us, at least, is doing it in a sustainable way. And sustainable way means having a business model that's mm -hmm. attached to it. So somebody has to generate revenue off of it in order to make it work. But you can have those double bottom lines. You can have a scenario where it can be a business that is absolutely a business, but at the same time does does good. And I, and I think, you know, in, in a world where uh, the level of challenges that we have, like I talked about 80 million plus people on Medicaid, we have some real issues there. And so uh, there's, I look at that and I say, cool, that's opportunity. That's an opportunity to improve things for people. And absolutely, there's a lot of money in the space. And so if we can make it more efficient and save people money, then for sure, there's a way to make our business sustainable so that we can hire the people that we need to support this effort. But yeah, it's exciting to work on something that feels like there's a there's a really clear mission at the end of the day. And so it's it was definitely something that we sat down and said, let's make this let's make this focused on the things that we want to that we want to talk to our parents about and that we feel proud of and that sure. and that we want to be able to, you know, point to. Excellent. So, you know, to, uh, continue with that thought, uh, you know, it's an, it's just you and I talking right now, and eventually people are going to be listening to this conversation. Are these same conversations happening in Silicon Valley, happening up in, in Silicon Valley here in New York City? Uh, and and if so, like, can you can you give some semblance of what some I like at least at a high level that you've been privy to? Uh, what are those uh, those conversations? Absolutely. I, you know, I don't think it's in every, the way that a business ends up getting started usually is that the entrepreneur or founders, I've never founded one of these companies on my own. It's always been with my brother, but usually somebody has some problem that they've experienced personally, uh, maybe in their business, maybe in their personal life. And they say, I think there's a way to solve this problem. And then hopefully they get passionate enough about it that they can't do anything but go focus on on this thing. I think that there are challenges that people see and that they want to go solve that may not inherently be mission driven. But like I said before, you can build, you know, a great company that on its face doesn't seem like it's, you know, it's selling some widget that feels like, all right, it's just selling some widget that the company can be set up in a way where it's giving away a certain amount of money to not-for-profits. It can be set up in a certain way where you know, if the founders and the employees do well, they're giving away their money, you know, pledging, et cetera. I think you can still have models that work for the for the businesses that don't feel quite as mission driven. But I also know just from being in the healthcare space, talking to a lot of entrepreneurs in that world, most of the people that I've talked to, particularly in healthcare, have experienced something in that world that they're driven by. And so it is very mission driven. And so I think it, I think it probably by sector maybe changes a bit but i also think there's a there's a way you know if you look at any of the spaces that we've been involved you know even the the advertising measurement on, on one hand you look at it and you go okay it's ads you know how how mission driven is ads how right. can you care so much about ads but at the same time advertising fuels and funds content and communications sure right? how much do we pay in order to have whatsapp Zero, right? Zero, I mean, you pay right. for your access to the internet, but that's to somebody else, not right. to not to Meta. You don't pay anything for it, and so you know we are paying for it with our data and our information, and and by seeing ads, absolutely. But it is also facilitating a lot of greatness that comes from having, as an example, WhatsApp. That's a great communications uh, platform, and I think we don't always put those pieces together. We we kind of just go, okay, that thing just works, 
and that's great. And writers are always going to write great content no matter what. And they're just going to spend their days putting it up, even if there's, you know, let's just get rid of all the ads. Well, it doesn't really, we've not figured that out as, as a society yet, how to do that without the ads. Mm -hmm. And I actually take, maybe it's a different view of, of advertising, but I think advertising is in its, in its aspirational state and its best days, it's storytelling, which to me is no different than anything else uh, we do. And, and I actually think there's a lot of goodness that comes out of it. I think that, that we look at advertising and it's easy to sort of give it a bad rap and say, oh, ads, you know, nobody wants to be involved with ads. I, I don't believe that's the only way to look at it. I think that there is a positive side of it that not only is it helping support and fund journalism and uh, free content and communications and, you know, the ability have people connecting around subjects that save lives I mean, that is advertising funded in the end of the day and so i look at it as as being good on on that front and then i also think that there's this other side of it which is we all have to choose something that we enjoy and that we're passionate about in life mm -hmm. and so if you can do good work and and do it with integrity and and help other people do their jobs uh, a little bit easier, a little bit better, then you are positively impacting people. And so, you know, I, I think there's different ways to look at it. But but certainly when I think about uh, uh, one of the things that's always a challenge is recruiting. It's certainly easier to to recruit uh, when we're talking about uh, improving health outcomes than if we're talking about, you know, making ads more efficient. Right. Because again, it's that 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 mission driven. I'm part of something, something that's bigger than myself, you know, something that's bigger than the collective on who's working on this. It, it, it's super interesting. You know, um, a, a couple weeks ago, I had uh, my friend Phil, uh, who's the CEO and founder of Project Healthy Minds, which is trying to make it super easy for consumers like you and I, Jonah, to find mental health resources across the internet, like be the front door uh, like I'm, I have a specific. I'm, I'm articulating my mental health issue. What is the right or corresponding uh, resource for me to use? Uh, and what's interesting, you know, one of the things that he pulled out was sometimes the CEOs at large at, at organizations, large or small, who are trying to make mental health of the employees as part and parcel the benefits and and of the day, like in, in terms of. We all need to take good care of our mental health. Mm. Part of that or a portion of that reason is it comes from a, a CEO uh, personal experience, whether it's themselves or it's someone that they're close to on why they need to, why we need to prioritize mental health. And it's super interesting to hear uh, based on your experience with other entrepreneurs who are in the healthcare industry, there is this, this, this compulsion of we need to do X and we need to solve X because of, again, a, a personal connection to the issue. And being able to articulate that in a succinct and concise and effective manner, I think, is huge. Just changing gears a little bit, you know, you mentioned your passion about being an operator. You're also an angel investor, WGI. Uh, you've invested in over 100 startups. Yeah. What, what's super interesting, you know, as I was preparing for our conversation is some of the uh, characteristics or attributes you look for an entrepreneur. You know, is this person uh, going to do what it takes to move the needle on the business? Is this person going to, I, lo I love uh, hearing this, you know, fly, uh, you know, fly to a prospect on a moment's notice. Uh, we, again, you, you mentioned, you know, finding something that you're passionate about and, you know, speaking with you and some other entrepreneurs, it's, it's very hard to shape that, that, that passion, that thought. It's like, okay, why not me? Why not us? I'm going to do whatever it takes to make this a reality, which I which I appreciate because again it, it rubs off on me. Beyond that, you know, and one thing and the other the other reason uh, why I'm loving this conversation is 
in addition to, to Mark, who I mentioned earlier, uh, you introduced me to Mike Kariakos, who has been a, a tremendous uh, mentor uh, to me. So Mike uh, co-founded Everyday Health, and then he founded co-founded Curiosity. And when I was in, in a low point in my career, I reached out to Jonah, and he introduced me to Mike. He's like, uh, you know, I invested. I was an angel investor in Curiosity. The thing that that that, I, and I think this is perhaps your investing thesis is yes, it's that entrepreneur is going to be willing to do anything and everything to move their their business. But it's that that menchiness, that that person who, who wants to do good and, and to help. I'd love for you to speak to that in terms of some of those yeah. soft skills and attributes. It's funny because, and I don't know that I have a great sort of approach to to angel investing. We've had lots of uh, companies we've invested in that have not worked out, uh, and and you hopefully learn something from those. We have we've had uh, a good number of companies that have that have done great, and and you certainly uh, are are excited when that happens. I, what I would say is across a wide swath of companies, there are characteristics that you start to be able to identify when you interact with the person. Maybe it's a chemistry, maybe it's something about the way that they describe their work or the way that they describe the area that they're focused on. But there's something that uh, in those conversations tells you, wow, this person is just, they're going to run through walls to, to make this business work. And, and so the, the first thing I think that I think about is the founder or founders, you know, what is her uh, or his perspective on the world that they're in, the business that they're trying to build? Mm -hmm. Because I know from my experience, the business itself probably changes, that the best companies usually don't start out uh, where they get to. Sure. And so as a result, it's really the person that you're making a bet on. And so is that person driven in a way that is, you know, frankly, uh, demonstrates grit. Is is this someone that you know you can see sort of getting hit with something that that in the business world is a really negative, not fun thing? They get sued. They you know have their bank account frozen. <laughs> they they have something something bad happen. You know, with reference to the the SVB thing that happened this this past couple of days. How do they deal with that? Do they do they remain you know cool under under the fire? Do they how do they make decisions in those moments? Um, and there's no way to know for sure, um, but you try to you try to bet on people that you feel like have a level of um, seriousness that they're approaching. And I think that's I think that's that's one of the things. I, I would also say when I'm thinking about people in both not only sort of investing but just interacting in the business world, I really look at two other traits that I think are you know soft skills that are that are critical. One is uh, attention to detail. And so the the folks that, you know, if you're going to invest in a company or partner with someone sure. and they do the things that they said that they were going to do, or they don't do the things that they said they were going to do. That's a, that's a big difference to me. So did they pay attention to the details? Did they follow through? Secondly, I would say, what is their overall attitude? Are they, are they positive? Are they cynical? Mm -hmm. um, are they negative? I, there's so many ups and downs in a startup that if you don't start uh, every day with somewhat of a positive sort of outlook, it's going to make it really hard to be successful because you're going to you're going to have your ups and downs. You're going to have these these moments where you go, "Why are we doing this? You know, we're we're making all the wrong decisions." And then you're going to have these moments where you think you're on top of the world, where you think you just figured everything out, mm -hmm. and then it, it can flip in in an instant. And so, you know, the folks that that are all right, well. 
what's how is this a good thing you know how how what is the good part of this what is the learning that we can take away from this what is the benefit what is the positive part of this of any situation i think that's those are the things that i go okay you know that's part of the formula being positive be it attention to detail having grit um and you can't test for everything it's not something that you're you know you can say you know tell me that when things go really bad this person's going to have Grit. And, and honestly, I've seen examples, uh, you know, and you said 100, probably 200 companies at this point that we've invested in. I've seen examples of entrepreneurs that, in my view, don't do well under pressure, that ultimately, you know, and, and hopefully they learn something from it, but but make decisions that were suboptimal for their company, for their employees, mm-hmm. for their investors, et cetera. And so, you know, you look at those things and you go, all right, how, what is the the learning from that? And is that something that we can that we can apply to to the future? But I also just think there's there's a when people are really driven for the right reasons, and that's you know going back to the healthcare stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, when you've experienced something, and you're going to go fix that thing, it feels totally different. It's like uh, this shouldn't happen in in this country with the amount of money that we spend. There should right. be a better way. I'm going to go do that. And I think that's where you know you get this level of sort of mission and drive and ambition and all these things come together in a really uh in a really nice way no that's uh no that's an amazing you know synopsis of you know what you're looking for in in that in that that fellow entrepreneur that you're investing in what catches my speaking of attention this would be the 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 word of of the uh of the hour is the the questions that you asked jonah uh, what what do you think separates a, a really good? Is it the, the type of questions that an entrepreneur asks, which, which separates them from being extraordinary from just being ordinary? Like, uh, I'd love to get your perspective. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't know that that I, I don't know that there is this thing of extraordinary versus ordinary, and someone is or or isn't. I mean, I know in every business that I've been involved with. Uh, there's moments where, you know, I feel like we don't have any idea what we're doing. And there's moments where we feel like, all right, we've been there before and, and we know how to see this through. And so I don't think it's that, you know, there's, there's someone that's extraordinary and you're just trying to find that person. Um, I think that it's about their both mentality and, and mindset. Um, how are they approaching building the business? How are they approaching building their team? How are they approaching the longevity in terms of the decisions that they're making? Are they are they making decisions that they'd be comfortable 10 years from now making? Uh, or are they making decisions that they're just literally, all right, just for this moment, this is this is what I'm doing. You know, I'm a, I've talked about this before, but I'm a big uh, follower, believer, whatever you want to say in in uh, Warren Buffett. Um, I think that that he's obviously uh, one of the one of the greatest investors. And he talks about on the investment front, having a punch card and says, you know, if you had a punch card of 10 punches and those are the only investments you can ever make, treat each one of those pretty, pretty seriously. And you'd be pretty careful about, about something that you're going to, that you're going to punch a hole in if it's only one of 10 for your life. And so I think about those types of lessons and I think about how are entrepreneurs uh, making decisions and are they making decisions that, you know, if they, if they have really thought it through that they maybe wouldn't have made based on the same information, or are they making decisions sort of with as much information as they could have in the moment, they make their best call and they're willing to recognize that they they can make a mistake, but they can adjust their path. And so I think the other thing is, you know, the challenge with being an entrepreneur is that you have to both have grit to fight through, 
but you also have to be flexible. And it's sort of those two things, being willing to sort of uh, metaphorically punch through a wall to, to get where you're trying to go, but also being willing to go, hmm, I don't want to punch through this wall, I'm going to go around it, is a slightly different mentality. And so figuring out uh, how to approach a situation and know, is this something where I need to just sort of head down, you know, work it out, figure it out, work harder, you know, push myself, push our team and just, just get to the right goal. Or are we missing something? Am I misunderstanding something? Did I miss something? And is there some other approach that, that we need to take? And so I think that's part of the, the reason it's so difficult to navigate these worlds. Um, but at the same time, I don't know that it's about someone who's extraordinary or ordinary. I think it's, it's about someone who's willing to be self-aware and who's willing to say, Hmm, I'm not, I'm not great at, at this. I'm going to lean on, you know, others to help me make this decision. Um, or honestly, I don't know what the right answer is. I'm just going to make one, but recognize that I'm going to have the ability to change it. If I, if I see that the facts change on the ground. Mm. It, it's, it's like super interesting. You say self-awareness, emotional intelligence, which again, which I, I appreciate it, you know, is one of the, the, the characteristics that, that you espouse, that, that you manifest, you know, as we talk, uh, and interact. Not every, uh, I would imagine, not every entrepreneur that you invest in has that that uh, that ability to spot. Like, yeah, maybe you know, in hindsight, twenty twenty, I should have done things a bit differently, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So, so being self aware and saying like I messed that up, or you know, we didn't do a good job of this. It's very interesting when you have a conversation with an entrepreneur, particularly one that's raising money, as an example, about what are you, what have you not done well, or what are you not good at, and you know. People aren't always ready for that that question because it feels like I'm supposed to be saying we're good at everything and we've figured out, we've thought about everything and we've figured it out. And sometimes the answer is, you know, well, we're not good at this or we haven't figured out how to do this well, uh, or that's actually a growth area for us. Some of the best entrepreneurs have said to me, yeah, we've made a mistake with that or, you know, we've underinvested in that. It's not something that it's not smart. We should be doing more. Like the people that are self-aware that know Oh, okay. We yeah, we we didn't do that well. I, I think are the ones that are more likely to be successful because they can sort of analyze their situation, if you will, a little bit from the outside. They can look at it and go, all right, I, I wasn't very good at that, at that part of it. I know for me, for example, I have a big list of things I'm not good at. <laughs> uh and, and I I try to, you know, surround myself with phenomenal people who are great at the things that I'm not good at, and because it's a long list, I need a lot of people. But there, are, once you realize that, then it it actually makes things much easier for everybody because now you can say, "This is not my my forte. This is not my area." You know, gladly have someone else own that because it's not something that, that I can really add a lot of value to. That's uh, no, that is that is amazing uh, that you're able to again look at yourself from the outside in. Uh, again, it's, it's it's something you can work at, uh, work uh, on. Uh, it doesn't, you know, perhaps for me at least, it doesn't come naturally. It, it, it takes work, you know, to say, hey, you know, maybe I should have done things a bit differently. Or again, hindsight's twenty twenty. But in, in terms of you know, speaking to those entrepreneurs, especially the ones who are raising money, does that dynamic change when that entrepreneur is? The, they've already exited. They've already had a successful exit, and now they're trying to raise money for their for their next venture. Yeah. The, the second time thing uh, or or beyond is a really interesting psychological dynamic because at some level, you know, some of our best investments have been entrepreneurs that have had successful exits previously. And so you look at that and you go, okay, you know, when they've done it once, maybe they're more likely to be able to do it again because they've been there, they've seen it, they've done it. 
But at the same time, there's something uh, about the psychology of expectation when you go to start a business and everyone in your little slice of the world knows you and is watching what you're doing and is paying attention and is analyzing or judging or saying that you're making mistakes or whatever, you have a different level of expectations of yourself as well as other people's. And so there's a balance there where I think back to, you know, the the late 90s when we were building our first business, nobody cared what we were doing and nobody was paying attention to it. And so there's something, there's a hard part of that, which is you have to kind of find your own way and break through. And that's a challenge, but there's a good part of it, which is that, you know, you can make plenty of mistakes and nobody's watching and there's not a news article that gets written about it and, mm-hmm. and any of that. The flip side is, you know, if you've built a business before and you're building something else, particularly in that same space, then people in that space are going to pay attention and they're going to say, yeah, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity because we, we believe that you could do something in this space, but there's also a higher expectation that comes with that. And so I think that, that managing the psychology of that can can be good or bad. I've seen entrepreneurs that have built a business, done well, built a second business that failed miserably. And I've seen entrepreneurs built a business that didn't do well and then build another one that did great. And I've seen people have multiple home runs in a row and you see every combination of it. And the question is, you know, is this person going to keep going? Are they going to keep going until they get to their next sort of successful point and and to me it goes back to what we're talking about with mindset and mm-hmm. mentality and positive attitude attention to detail all those sure. types of things grit because it's it's those attributes end up from what i've seen be important things that that the successful entrepreneurs tend to tend to have mm-hmm. no that's uh that, that is like a super you know interesting perspective you know again is that that person who's hasn't been successful are they going to persist are they going to have that tenacity to to keep going and going and going i know I, th- I think that's uh again as i mentioned was super interesting do you think some of that perspective that you have on uh we're, we're, you know you have this at least it comes across this learner's mindset of like yeah i, I started a couple of businesses i invested in, in, in a couple of businesses but you think that learner's mindset comes from you know growing up in ann arbor growing up you know in your household like did, did your parents you know uh again convey that sense of always be curious I don't know if they, if they, my parents were both, I don't know if they said it explicitly. They certainly conveyed it. Conveyed it. Um, uh, you know, they, uh, my parents were both teachers. My mother was uh, an early childhood uh, educator. She ran nursery schools in, in Michigan. She would go on to become a, a social worker eventually. Uh, my dad was an a, a English professor, uh, comparative literature and, and philosophy. And, and so, you know, both my mom and my dad were very curious people. And both of them um, were very open-minded and asked a lot of questions. And I think, I think, you know, it's funny because I have four children now. And so I think back to some of the the things that my parents did and I think, oh, okay, that was interesting how that, how we learned that lesson in that case. And, you know, am I doing that or am I not doing that with, with my kids? And I think the fact that both of my parents were hard workers and they were driven by their by their work. Those were attributes that that I very much so um, I think tried to tried to imitate and and tried to make a part of who I would become. And I think that they both you know were were as teachers were were out for good, if you will. Mm-hmm. They were out to help the world and are mm-hmm. uh, out to help the world and um, discover and share 
Um, both my parents have written books, uh, uh, and and they just they I think you know demonstrations of a level of um, sort of curiosity, but also an approach to life that I think is maybe not unique to, to teachers. I, I I think it is, um, but I, I, their approach was was definitely very impactful on me. And so you know when and I, I think the the Midwest thing, you know, I don't know. I I, I do think that there's. And again, I say this with a backdrop of I'm living in New York City and raising my kids here, right. that maybe the Midwest thing was there was something to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think about that a lot is there, you know, the uh, the approach that, you know, I think it all, I think we always have a little bit of this. It was always better in our, you know, the way I was raised, yeah. we didn't have to worry about it. There's always something like that. Um, so I try to catch myself on those types of things. But at the same time, I do think that there's something to the mentality there's something to the approach of like hey just trying to you know work hard have a decent life help other people raise some kids like there's there's something to that being the 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 values that that you have and certainly i got that from my parents right and it's and it's not and you don't say like okay i'm just going to check the box like okay i'm going to go to college and start a career and then uh start a family it's no you there's there's an intentionality behind it of how do I want to do these things? Which I think is so uh, it, it's so it, it's so distinguishing from yeah. Everyone has you know similar goals and aspirations, but these goals and aspirations uh, you're, you're a bit more you're you're much more intentional in how you articulate the, those things, and and you have that mission behind it of you know yes, I build businesses, yes, I'm invested in, in businesses, as well as how do we do what we're doing to to improve the world around us how do we make how do we make the less familiar more familiar yeah. right it's like you mentioned the, those medicaid stats like do, do these people know or do and do these people know that they have coverage and better yet do the people in the hospital know and the people who are also in the hospital know that these people who need perhaps life-saving treatment and surgery have the coverage that they need no, so, in short, no. In short, in short no. In short, no. And yeah. Exactly. But yeah. I think, again, going back to the curiosity, I think you're you're helping people around you and around the world that you that you interact with to ask those questions, just similar to the questions that you're asking. Or when, you know, and I, I heard an interview about when you were starting uh, Colonize in, mm-hmm. in college, and it's like you reach a certain juncture, like, oh, my God, Barnes & Noble just called me. Like, what do we do with this? Like, yeah, I mean, there, it's interesting because there's, it's I, I, I think a lot about this with my kids, as, as I was talking about, is the backdrop. And I don't think it is something, I, and I think about back to my childhood, I didn't, this concept of like pausing, being self-aware, mm-hmm. you know, sort of seeing outside of yourself, if you can, uh, in some way, I didn't sort of figure that out. If if I have figured anything out, I didn't figure that out until much later in life. And so, you know, I know that there is, as a kid, as a 20-year-old starting those first businesses, I didn't have any of that. I was just sort of doing what I was doing. But at the same time, I had parents who had values and who thought about things in a certain way and looked at the world in a certain way and had curiosity. And so mm-hmm. at the same time, I may have had I may have had that as an influence without knowing it, without being able to verbalize it, without sure. sort of stepping back from it. And so, but I I think about that a lot because I think, you know, with is is it something that needs to be verbalized uh as as you're growing up or as you're getting started in business that hey you know make sure you're taking time to pause and look at things and or is that just something that you know like with a lot of things in life it just as you get older you 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 tend to do these things uh more often um you know my dad is a is a uh philosopher 
Um, and so he he tends to ask a, a lot of questions and and uh, sort of pontificates about about different ways the world works and different roads to take. And so I'm sure some of that uh, got sort of passed down to me, passed down to me. And and uh, but at the same time, you know, I can also point to lots of examples in my business career where. I made a decision that did not take those things into consideration and sure. and was the wrong decision. The first company you mentioned, Colonize, we got approached to sell the company before the bubble burst. Uh, and we didn't do it. So, you know, hard to argue at that time that that was the right move. Now you could flip that negative into a positive, which we eventually did, which was had we sold it, we would have thought that was great at the time. But uh, one, maybe that wouldn't have been the right move for us as individuals, maybe we wouldn't have gone on to get involved with right media and eventually mm -hmm. mode and eventually the other stuff that we've done. And so maybe our path only worked because we didn't do that, that one thing. And so, you know, you, you don't know, um, which is why I always look at it and go, all right, well, what's the, what's the positive side of this? How can I think about this through a positive lens? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like what, what's the silver lining? And it's, and it's, and it's, it's amazing that when you, you know, what, what does Steve Jobs say? I love this quote. You, you can't, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them on the way back. That's looking right. back. So you're looking back and like, yeah, if we sold colonized and we wouldn't have met Michael and we wouldn't have invested in right media. And then all these things would not have happened and unfolded the way that it did. That's right. So it, it, again, it goes back to the emotional intelligence again, of looking at that silver lining. Yeah. Like, yeah, we missed out on the opportunity before the dot-com burst, but look at all the good that ensued. And you can't do anything about it. You can't. Day. Yeah, right. So, you so can. you know, right. if if the choice is, and at some level it is a choice, if the choice is to look at something and find the negative, or the choice is to look at something and find the positive, it feels a lot better to find the positive. And I think it ends up leading to better decision making because you know, well, worst case, I'll learn something from it. I'll find something positive that was a result of that experience. And so, it's a mentality that I think I've learned. Uh, over time, and and it's something that I try to practice. Not not perfect at it, and definitely make plenty of mistakes. Um, but it's I think there's a I think to do any business for a long period of time and to build businesses for you know 25 years, it, it's you have to figure out your triggers and the levers to turn, how to how to manage your psyche in a way that is sustainable. Um, you know, mental health. You mentioned that is a gigantic challenge for all of us. Um, I don't know a single person that either isn't directly uh, affected by it or, or doesn't know someone who's affected by it. And so, uh, you know, how we manage our psyche, how we manage the part of us that I think we don't always talk enough about, but is our, our mentality and our approach to things is actually critical to, I think, our happiness and our level of stress um, and maybe even our longevity in this world, because I think, you know, whether we, whether we like it or not, there is a formula that we've not all yet discovered. You know, why is it that certain people live much longer than others? As an example, it's not, it, what is clear is it's not just based on, did you eat the right things? And did you exercise a lot? Um, I think those are really good things, right. but it's clear that it's not just that because we can think of lots of examples of people that didn't do that, that lived a long time and people that did do that, that didn't live a long time. And so I personally believe that there's something else. And I think that something else has to do with happiness and stress, having as low stress as possible or managing your stress and having a lot of happiness, having joy. And I think that, you know, 
my oldest brother calls it the happiness quotient, but I, I don't think we've we've incorporated the happiness quotient into into how we look at life. And so I, I try to purposefully do that. I try to think about, all right, is doing this going to make me happy or is the way that I can be happy from doing this? And I think that's that's part of the calculation of, I believe, uh, in terms of of living and and sort of being around with our kids and being able to to have a long, uh, fulfilling life. Long, fulfilling life, and enjoying what you're doing, having passion, being able to spend the the, the time that you want to spend with, with the people that are important to you, starting with your family, your wife, your kids, friends, you know, extended family, and then into your colleagues. Uh, Jonah, this has been a, tre- a tremendous uh, conversation. I really do appreciate uh, your time this afternoon uh, coming to the Lurie side to PNT Network. Before we before we end this conversation, any uh, well, two questions. One, any you know, you mentioned about the, the positivity and the happiness. Any other sort of parting wisdom? But two, for the folks who are listening, who are like you know, who are again trying to crack that healthcare nut or other issues that that uh, your venture lab is trying to tackle and and solve, how can they reach out to you? Uh, sure. So reaching out to me is easy. Uh, you can email me at uh, Jonah at mtklabs.com. Uh, in terms of, you know, parting wisdom, what I would say is so much of this uh, life that I don't claim to have figured out. The only thing I would say that I believe um, that maybe I have figured out, and I didn't figure this out on my own, but with a lot of help, is that what we're trying to solve for psychologically is not an N of everybody else. It's an N of one. It's figuring out for you, how do you uh, get out of bad loops? How do you get to the right mindset? How do you have the positive attitude? How do you stay happy? It's not how do other people, it's managing that psyche for yourself. And I think that perhaps more than anything else was was really helpful for me when I sort of eventually understood that that if you can if you can solve it for yourself then you can positively impact others um and and that's really the only way to to i believe change the world is is do good uh be good be happy yourself and and hopefully uh do good for others there, there you have it uh again jonah thank you so much for your time uh your insights that that wisdom uh and for the people who are eventually going to listen uh, you know, again, Jonah is making it super easy for you to reach out to him if you have any questions, and we'll uh, get this uh, conversation up soon. Thanks Thank for you. having me on the show, Eric.